Hello everyone, welcome back to another podcast with me. I'm Luke Tullock, this is my podcast. Uh, Before we start, I'd just like to give a plug to my online membership site, The Fitness Fundamentals. If you'd like to check that out, please visit luketullock.com slash membership and check it out there. All right, let's get into it. So today I'm going to talk about some stuff that I used to believe in that I no longer believe in in the health and fitness space. There's quite a lot of it, (laughs) as there should be. Um, So to kind of get the ball rolling, I think most of us should have an evolution of ideas over time. And if you don't, there's something seriously wrong. We should be updating our thoughts and feelings about various practices, and we should evolve as we go on. Sometimes that is an incremental evolution. And, you know, when I sometimes get asked about things I used to believe in, that I no longer do or big epiphanies I've had, I can't really think of a lot of things off the top of my head because rarely is there a, a massive change of heart on something. It's usually a slow evolution as I expose myself to more information and read more literature and that kind of thing. And I think that's why it's really important to avail yourself to differing opinions. Certainly in the past, I've, and I think everybody's like this, you get stuck in this bubble of your own belief systems and exposing yourself to other information is actually an important part of not getting stuck in another bubble. So I have changed my mind on a lot of things and become more involved in the quote unquote evidence-based community, but I think you can get stuck in that bubble as well and you can repeat the same mistakes. And then on the other hand, sometimes things are a big epiphany. Sometimes you do change your mind on a dime or you spend a week or two thinking about something and actually completely uproot your currently held beliefs and change them almost overnight. So today I'm going to talk about a few of those instances in both cases. Now, when this first comes to mind, I think of my days back when I used to take a lot of the Charles Poliquin courses. Uh, Well, not that I took a lot of them, but it was really, really popular, especially here in Australia. I know Australia was a really fertile ground for Charles to come out and do his courses uh, in the probably early 2000s up until not too long ago, and obviously he's passed away now. But a lot of people attended the Biosignature and the PICP. I actually traveled to the US to to do some courses. And so about probably, I'd say maybe eight or so years ago, I was quite heavily embroiled in that world. And I thought a lot of the things that Charles said were really, really smart on the nutrition front, especially. I think some of his training stuff is pretty bright. I don't agree with all of it, but certainly on the nutrition side of things, my opinions have developed a lot from what I used to believe and what Charles used to teach back in those days. Probably the first thing that springs to mind is the idea of insulin being the main cause of making us fat. And I would actually think my very first podcast episode was on that. So if you're interested in the full story on that, you can go back and listen. But long story short, I used to avoid carbs like the plague. I used to tell clients to avoid carbs like the plague because I was afraid of them making me fat and making them fat. But I think in the back of my head, because I liked to try and take a logical approach about things, I did realize that, hey, something doesn't quite add up over here. How come some of the bodybuilders that I'm a big fan of will get really lean eating like white rice and chicken breast all the time, which will spike your insulin quite a lot? I remember watching a video about uh, Rich Gaspari, who has, as you might uh, infer, an Italian background and he would eat a whole lot of pasta into his deep into his prep for bodybuilding shows and he was renowned for his conditioning so 
something didn't quite add up, you know? Um, and so, you know, thinking about that sort of stuff and then eventually going back to university and taking on more skills that allowed me to research this a bit better, I could actually look at the literature and the objective data and see for myself what was going on instead of taking someone else's word for it. And that kind of opened up a whole new door for me. But it was very, very difficult for me to change my mind because I'd been telling people this for with such conviction for such a long time. And it took a lot for me to then turn around and go, well, actually, I think what I've been telling everybody is wrong. And as a professional and someone who kind of lives what they preach, it's a very difficult thing to do. But went through that pain and managed to change my mind on that. And now I, of course, realize that the amount of insulin you produce in response to a meal is of very little import outside of disease states like diabetes. And in fact, the total caloric load is definitely the most important thing. And certainly adhering to a diet in the long term is far more important than that. So that's probably the first thing that springs to mind for me. I was really sucked in uh, by the the bubble, the low-carb bubble. I listened to low-carb podcasts. I read low-carb books. Uh, I associated with other Poliquin-inspired and influenced trainers all the time, online forums and communities, that sort of thing. And I kind of put the blinders on to everything else outside of that. And I think that actually taught me a really important lesson. Even when there is some stuff that I don't necessarily agree with now, I still make the effort to try and objectively evaluate it. And of course, we can never be perfectly objective. That's just not possible. But I do my absolute best having tried to take on a lesson from those days when I was a low-carb zealot. Similarly, on the nutrition front, I've spoken about this before, but I used to be really into supplements and I used to think that their effects were far greater than they actually were. I think it was exciting to me to be able to research their mechanisms of action and to play around with that stuff. It's kind of biohacking in a way, which I kind of hate that term. I think it's pretty stupid, but you know, it's probably not a better way to describe it than biohacking. And so that was very exciting to me. It was like a little hobby to research those mechanisms and to try different combinations. And I remember in my early days at George Street Fitness First here in Sydney, I'm sure if there's any of the trainers there listening, I used to come in with all of these powders that I'd ordered in bulk from the internet and I'd make my own pre-workouts in the locker room, in the staff locker room, which tasted horrible, but uh, it was it was really fun for me to do. And, you know, I spent quite a lot of money and time and effort researching them and buying the supplements and, and using them in various ways and honestly didn't notice too much difference. It was, if I did, it was probably a whole lot of placebo because... As I did more research and as I worked things out, I actually realized that a lot of the research is pretty poor quality. There's not a lot of it. There's small sample sizes. And of course, there's conflicts of interest throughout the supplement world in the research sphere. So that's something that I've really changed my mind on. I used to be quite a big proponent of supplementation as a sort of first line, you know, take a multivitamin, take fish oil, take BCAAs, take protein powder, glutamine, glycine, all of this different stuff. And these days, I hardly ever recommend supplements. And if I do, it's only after people have gotten a whole bunch of other things in line. I certainly think that there's a hierarchy that I adhere to now that is much more realistic and much more impactful uh, and much more efficient than going the supplement route as a first line. Another thing, by the way, I'm recording this off the cuff, so I'm just kind of thinking of things as they come to me, stream of consciousness style, but... Another thing that's coming to mind is things like organic foods and GMO foods. And I've changed my mind on that as well. 
in the Poliquin days as well, there was a really big pushback against any conventionally grown food and any genetically modified food. And I'll tackle those two things separately. On the organic front, I've come to realize that there's a few issues with it that I have. And the first is that the data suggests that there's actually no difference nutritionally between conventionally grown food and organic foods. And I posted an infographic on the Instagram quite recently about that. So you can check that out if you're interested to see the data on that one. There's quite a few systematic reviews now that have reinforced each other on that one. So in my mind, it's a pretty clear case. But the other factor is just that the evaluation of organic to me has always seemed a little bit shady. Like I was never quite sure exactly what organic meant and what you had to do to get organic certification in different parts of the world and in different industries. And it also kind of didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense that there was a particular way to grow and care for crops that were like, you know, let's say strawberries, for example, versus corn. Clearly the climate and the, the predators, the, the pests that would, that would affect those crops are going to be quite different. And so being organic, it kind of seemed to me like, well, surely there's different requirements for each of those crops, but I wasn't really sure. So I think it's quite unclear, especially to the consumer, exactly what organic means and exactly how their crops are grown. And I feel like uh, things like meat and dairy and various crops tend to all get thrown into the same bucket of being organic when it is probably something that's quite specific to the particular crop in the particular region that it's grown. To give you an example on the meat front, I know that in Australia, our beef is actually pretty good. It's mostly raised in pastures and it's rarely, well, some of it is definitely put in feedlots, but it's not nearly as much compared to places like the US and the UK, as far as my understanding goes. So if I was in the US and I was buying US meat, it might be a completely different situation to buying conventionally grown or farmed beef in Australia, for example. Um, and so that muddies the waters even more, you know, the origin of your food and exactly how and where it's, it's grown and how it's dealt with definitely muddies the waters there. And it makes that whole organic label seem a little bit arbitrary to me. The other side of it, of course, is the pesticide argument, and I'm fairly convinced that there's not really a whole lot of bad stuff going on with pesticides from a consumer standpoint. I certainly think if you're an agricultural worker, there may be some issues there because the level of exposure is so much higher. But as a consumer, you know, I would pr probably prefer to have that pesticide use there just because it's, you know, helping me avoid things like pathogens, it's increasing crop yields, it's keeping the food cheap enough for me to actually be able to buy and eat enough vegetables every week. And, you know, I just think that the evidence in this case has definitely not shown there to be any you know, large magnitude health issues with that sort of thing. Of course, you can make up your own mind about that. That's just my opinion. But I personally believe that the data is pretty clear, but I would encourage you to actually look into it and research it rather than um, taking somebody else's opinion on it. Now, when we get to genetically modified foods, again, I've spoken about this before, where I think that I used to be quite against it, but when I stopped and thought about it, it actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, well, let me backtrack a little bit. One of the people that I think does a really good job of explaining the way genetically modified organisms work is a guy called Kevin Falter. And him and a bunch of other people who work in this field as both professors at universities and, you know, advisors to various companies in some cases will basically explain how it works properly. And they 
they make a really great point that traditional methods of breeding are actually far more uncontrolled than genetic modification. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, we wouldn't have, for example, like a pug wouldn't exist if we didn't selectively breed. Um, we have both animals, but especially plants that have no resemblance really to their originators uh, because of selective breeding. And that's how we used to produce crops in a, in a, and we still do to this day. So, you know, you, you take the healthiest or the nicest looking apples and you breed them together and then you get another version of that. And then you take those and you breed them together. And what you're doing is essentially taking all of the genetic information in those plants and you're smashing them together. You're smashing thousands of genes together with unpredictable results. Now, well, they're predictable to some extent, but essentially you don't really know what's going on other than, oh yeah, this one looks a bit nicer or whatever it is, or it tastes a bit sweeter. Now with genetic modification, what typically happens is under strict regulatory guidelines, scientists are going in and changing a gene, testing and testing and testing before it may eventually come out into, you know, market. And that's the way it should be. I'm certainly not arguing against that. It should be very heavily regulated and proceeded upon very carefully. However, I do think that people kind of have it backwards. You know, you don't have to have any special knowledge in this area. You simply need to have a critical mind and to just sort of stop and think about it and go, well, hang on. Selective breeding is actually far less controlled and we don't really know what results we're getting. And that's the way we've been doing it traditionally for thousands and thousands and thousands of years as a species. Whereas modern genetic modification is a far more precise method that's heavily regulated. And so fears around GMO seem largely unfounded. And again, I'll reiterate that it should be regulated and we should be very careful with that technology. However, it just seems that a lot of the fear mongering is completely unfounded if you just look at it logically. I think probably something that I won't really comment on too much, but probably one of the biggest controversies is ownership of life and you know trying to patent different uh, crops or genetic variants or whatever it is. And that's certainly an issue, but I'm not going to get into it because I don't know too much about it. So those are sort of some things that really come up on the nutrition side of things that I used to believe quite strongly in, but I embraced the pain, let's say, <laughs> and changed my mind on that. And, and, you know, I put a lot of my information out publicly and I have no doubt that a lot of the information I'm putting out publicly now to tens of thousands of people will come around uh, to be something that I change my mind on in the future. And I'm going to have to publicly own up to that at some point, especially, you know, in this day and age, if I, if I put out something now in 10 years time, there's no doubt that someone will be able to dig it up and be like, oh, but you said this, or you think that. And it's like, well, you know, if I haven't changed my mind in 10 years, then I'm sorry, you shouldn't be following me. We should be changing our minds. Anyway, there's some other stuff on the training side of things. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I used to believe in that I've changed my mind on. And I think a lot of the stuff that I believe in now, I'm going to change my mind on because this is such a, a burgeoning field in the research realm. And we're learning so much more about it. But uh, I still think that there's one of these things that is infinitely customizable, let's say. You know, if you are putting together a workout for hypertrophy, for growing muscle, there's literally thousands or tens of thousands of ways to go around, go about putting together a training program that are all probably equally viable, 
as long as it's based on principles. And that's why, you know, like some of the stuff I do online with my courses, it's all about principles. It's not really about, well, this is the XYZ method and this is the ABC method and you got to do it like this and you got to do it like that. It's more based on principles because at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff is kind of infinitely variable depending on the individual in front of you. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of the things that I'm saying, uh, I'm trying to base on principles so that there's not too much <laughs> that I have to change my mind on later. But of course, there is a lot of research coming out in this field and we're learning a lot more about how this stuff works. In the old days, I used to place a big emphasis on things like rest periods and tempo and to some extent exercise selection. And these days I feel that that stuff is far less important. Again, I've gone back to a hierarchy of things where in the nutrition realm, I used to believe things that, you know, the, the particular composition of your foods and the origin of where it was grown and all that sort of stuff was very, very important. Whereas now I believe that that's much less important. And I believe that energy balance and macronutrient ratios are much more important. Similarly with training, I used to think that things like tempo and rest periods were really important. And now I don't think they're very important at all. Certainly the research has not dictated that any particular tempo is superior to another one. And the more we're learning, the more we're understanding that if you want to maximize things like hypertrophy and strength, probably just as long as you can possibly rest is best. <laughs> and, you know, provided your workout is sufficiently efficient, then you probably just want to make sure that your rest periods are as long as you can make them while still being able to get in and out of the gym in time. And that's something that I've certainly changed a lot on. So you used to hear a lot of things like out of my mouth that would be like, well, you know, time under tension for a particular set, you should be you know, trying to make the set last 40 seconds for optimal hypertrophy. And it just seems completely arbitrary now. Uh, whereas now, you know, I'm thinking more about proximity to failure. Whereas I think the, the things like the load and the actual rep numbers don't matter so much. I think proximity to failure is really the primary driver there because we're trying to recruit as many muscle fibers as we can and place mechanical tension on them. And so that's kind of something that I've definitely changed my mind on quite a lot. And I think another one that a lot of people get sucked into is something that I posted about recently on Instagram TV, where using exercise as energy, uh, an energy expenditure tool is something that I've moved away from completely. Now, I still think there's a place for like having some programmed cardio or conditioning sessions or things like that in terms of energy expenditure. And I'll certainly still use it sometimes in some situations for that. But I think too many people get too obsessed with calories and energy and they're constantly thinking about that all the time they're constantly thinking about energy input and energy output and when they go into train in the gym the main goal is really to like burn as many calories as possible and as i explained in the video there's quite a few problems with that firstly that you don't actually burn as many calories as you think doing a gym session it certainly does burn calories but it's probably not efficient as cardio but secondly that you know, we're not necessarily going in and improving any kind of physical attributes then. We're just going in to literally have an energy dump, which I think is is kind of sad when you think about it. Because what you could be doing instead, you've got this opportunity cost of doing that when you could be getting stronger, you could be getting faster, you could be getting fitter, you could be growing more muscle. And I really think that that's where the focus should be for training is not making yourself fatigued or tired or burning a ton of energy, those start, those things might be a side effect of your training for sure. But the main focus should definitely be on improving performance in some aspect. And I think that's really beneficial because it gives you another dimension to your health and fitness where 
you're now not so focused on energy in and energy out, but you're focused on this extra dimension of how am I getting better? How am I improving? How am I feeling better? How am I feeling proud of myself when I see progress? And that's so significant. That's such a massive change of mindset. And I've moved well away from that with my clients where I'm just trying to get them to burn energy to like, hey, like I know your goals are actually physique oriented, but it makes it so much more satisfying to them and to me. And it allows the programming to be so much more extra dimensional when you have a performance outcome attached to that as well. So that's a massive mental shift and something that I've changed my mind on quite a lot over the last couple of years. And it's borne a lot of fruit, actually. I start to feel like I'm moving better these days. My clients are moving better. They can do more. And you can see it in their outlook as well in terms of getting excited for training and, and the, I suppose, the feeling of pride that you get from improving in different areas. Something else that I've also changed my mind about is exercise execution and a lot of things. I came from a background of powerlifting and then kind of moved into bodybuilding and I also played a bit of rugby and a lot of the positions that we ended up getting ourselves in is one of hyperextension and retraction of the scapula. So the lumbar was extended, the thoracic is extended, the scapulae uh, or the shoulder blades are retracted and depressed and you're in that sort of power position all the time. Now there's nothing wrong with that position at all. but I think there's a massive issue when you're never protracting your scapula, you're never rounding your back, any of those things. Now, I'm certainly not advocating under a heavy squat, like rounding your lumbar spine. By all means, you should be in that powerful extended position in that in that situation. But, you know, more and more, I'm seeing that people who do a lot of powerlifting and with the rise of raw powerlifting around the world, but in Australia and in particular in my, my gym, you see these people come in and they get a lot stronger and it's it's awesome. Their physiques improve, they get stronger, they have this sense of pride that I just spoke about from achieving so much. And unfortunately, over time, you start to see injuries creep in. You start to see that they move worse. So the quality of their movement gets worse. They get less athletic. So they were sort of coming in, a lot of these people having had very little previous weight training experience I've actually seen quite a lot of females come in who have never really played a lot of sport. They've never really engaged with their physicality and they're engaging in the strength sport and it's fantastic to see. However, they, so they go from that to you know improving their physicality and it's fantastic and it's all good. And then a few years later, it's like they're getting more injured. They're moving less well. All of a sudden, they're getting less athletic because they're just kind of stuck in these positions all the time. And so I've moved a bit away from that and I'm starting to think a bit more about trying to get through different ranges of motion. And what made this click for me was looking at gymnastics and that style of training, general calisthenic training, I suppose. So at the gym I work at, we had a big focus on calisthenics, weightlifting and powerlifting. And the we had a few people come out and do gymnastics courses. And so I actually tried doing gymnastics as an adult for the first time for a period of about six months. And it put me in positions that I'd never really been in before or not very much as a bodybuilder slash powerlifter. And it got me thinking about different types of movements and different positions I could put my body in and different motor control patterns and that kind of thing. And so something that I ended up evolving and changing my mind on was things like always being in those retracted, depressed positions of the scapulae, always being extended through the thoracic and through the lumbar. And now a big part of my training is actually trying to achieve and own those positions because I'm really shit at it. I, I trained for like 
15 years in those positions and I suck at getting in those positions and it ends up causing me discomfort and pain in the shoulders and the neck in the lumbar spine. And that's certainly just an anecdote, but you know, people that I've seen lifting um, who don't go and train all of those different positions and just get really, really strong in only some positions tend to miss out on that area of physicality and it can actually cause them some troubles down the road. Now I've started to see this being incorporated in really high level powerlifters. So, um, you know, one of the guys that I really look up to is Will Crozier, who's a very, very strong lifter here in Australia. Um, deadlifted 387.5 kilos. And he gets all of his guys to actually do simple push-ups that they get into protraction because as a power lifter, when you're bench pressing, when you're squatting, you're pinning those shoulder blades back and down. And to keep them healthy, you need to be able to let them protract. You need to let them round forward under load. You need to let them elevate and come up overhead. And so that really got me thinking, and that's something that I've changed my mind on over the last couple of years with training as well. And that's been sort of a slow evolution. That wasn't an overnight turnaround either. There's probably many other things that I've changed my mind on. Like I said, a lot of the stuff is just a slow evolution in the way I do things, in the way I implement things, in my, my total understanding, the entire web of things that I think about. Uh, but I hope that gives a little bit of insight. And I suppose the key point in all of this is that we all often believe silly things. We all often buy into stuff. And I'm sure there's maybe some stuff I've spoken about today that I'm going to change my mind on or evolve my ideas on. And, you know, a change of mind is not something to be derided. It's not something to be avoided. It's, it's something to be embraced. Evolving your ideas is paramount. It's really important. If people's ideas don't change, if they don't evolve over time, then I think that's a massive red flag. So if you enjoyed this, then I hope you will share it, rate it, subscribe, all of that stuff that will help me. Again, um, I talk about a lot of these ideas in my membership site. So once more, if you'd like to check it out, Fitness Fundamentals, luketullock.com slash membership. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll be back with more probably next week. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time.